Okay, welcome back to Strengthening Recovery Through Strengthening Marriage, Healing from Pornography Addiction. I'm Jeff Stewart. And I'm Dr. Kevin Skinner. And this is part four of our six-part series on healing marriages affected by pornography addiction. And today's uh, session is going to be talking about addiction and intimacy, really understanding the foundation of what makes healthy intimacy and really what is damaged in the, in the aftermath of a pornography disclosure. You know, and one of the things that we start off with here, Jeff, there's, a, there's really a question that it boils down to, and that is questions that both the men and the women have in this situation. And I think the question that we most often get is, why can't he understand my pain from the female's perspective? And then the males are often asking, what's that question? That's right. The men, the men are asking questions like, why can't I be accepted? You know, what, why is she rejecting me, essentially, you know? And, and along with that is, why, why is it hurting her so much? Yeah. Why, why, why can't I grasp this pain that she's going through? Right. And sometimes he may not even be asking the question, but he hates the feeling that he has when she's crying. He's not able to understand, I've created this, but why is it so traumatic? Why is it so difficult? And then that often, oftentimes turns to shame and guilt inside of him. It's like, man, I've just I, everything I do, I hurt her. Yeah, the, the, dis- the disconnection is profound for both, and they're both feeling very isolated and lonely and scared. And so I think what we can do first to uh, really set the stage for this is understand how intimacy is formed and, you know, as humans, how we bond and attach and, and uh, create that foundation of security, safety, and trust. And then that will give us an understanding, really, of, of what's affected in this and lead us towards steps of rebuilding that. You know, and I think the depth of the trauma, Jeff, is really uh, created in earlier life experiences for both the men and the women. And, and I say the depth of the trauma because for some individuals, this exacerbates or reminds them of earlier life experiences. And it's like, now I thought I could trust you and you of all people have betrayed me like my parents, like my family, like, like my friends growing up or somebody. And so it's literally a reminder of previous traumas and it really then can exacerbate the amount of pain that the females are in. Right. And one thing I've also seen, and you've probably seen this too in your work, is that even if the person grew up with a relatively healthy family system and support network and so on, the trauma of betrayal in this can can be just as profound, if not more so, as an adult. And so um, I think what you're saying is it just makes it that much more uh, sensitive and difficult to heal and takes uh, takes a lot more effort and work if there's already been if this is a re-traumatization of earlier losses. You know, and then the question that many couples are encountering, and this is really the primary focus of today's show, is all right, how do we approach intimacy? I mean, have we been able to have good intimacy in the past, and this has created a fracture in it? Or some couples, and I'm sure you've seen this in your practice, they really haven't had intimacy at all, really close, deep intimacy, even from the onset of the marriage. That's right. That's right. And so understanding the, uh, I guess, the, uh, the beginnings of intimacy and how we form this is, uh, is going to be so critical. And, uh, and then it will certainly feed into understanding how couples, when they start to bond and form this adult relationship, um, basically how that, uh, how that relationship is, is going to develop. And so I, I think early on we need to start with understanding attachment from a perspective of uh, adult-child attachment. Uh, let's start there. When a when a child enters into a into the world, uh, the the thing that they need to know is that their caregiver is going to be accessible and responsive to them. That when they reach out, the person's going to reach back. 
And this process happens thousands and thousands of times. And the child gets the message over time that they're valuable, that they're loved, that they're, they're safe, the world has order, it's predictable, they can count on knowing what they're going to get and what they're not going to get. It's, it's a very safe, secure kind of system. And some of the work is showing that some of those early attachment bonds are happening literally within the womb. But by four to six months to 12 months, that attachment bond to a primary caretaker is in place. That's right. And, and so a lot of the times people think that the real parenting doesn't begin until children can speak or they're, they're much older. And it's just not true. The, uh, the nonverbal bonding and attachment process happens immediately. And, and so understanding attachment is, is critical for understanding how to restore intimacy. So that primary attachment relationship that a child has growing up is a central to the child's sense of well-being, their sense of worth and value. And as they grow up, and that, that, that attachment, that bond stays intact, and that caregiver is accessible and responsive, uh, the child enters adulthood with, a, with really a sense of healthy interdependence. They enter uh, relationships knowing that if I need something, I can ask for it and I'll be able to get it. Or if, I, if they can't give it to me, at least they'll care how I feel. And an important part here is as they progress through early childhood into the teenage years, because pornography is introduced into an individual's life oftentimes at a very young age, say it's 11 on average, then what that can create inside of an individual trapped in it is the lack of attached relationships or closeness. So they may actually pull back from a loving family. They may pull back because of their own guilt or their own shame, not knowing how to communicate with somebody. And and unfortunately, they've really, in some instances that I've experienced, they've never formed an attachment bond. Mm-hmm. And some of them have grown up in families where that wasn't exist, didn't exist in the first place. But that's a critical part that if we do not address that in a couple relationship as they're now coming to us, then I think we're leaving behind the core part that's really going to help them heal and strengthen the marriage. Yeah, what I always do with the couples I'm working with is I do an attachment history. I want to understand from them, where did they go when they were distressed? What did they do when they were in pain? Who could they seek comfort from? And in many cases, what I'm finding is that there was always one person in their life that they couldn't get close to. And it may have been a father who was home but not emotionally available. It could have been, it could have been physical abandonment. It could have been abuse. It could have been a family system that was very chaotic and disorganized or very emotionally shut down. But all of those are forms of abandonment. And I think that sometimes we, we look at that word and only think that it means that these are children who are, who are literally orphaned or, or so on and you know, have to be uh, put in other homes because they don't have parents. What I'm talking about is it's, it's a very lonely experience to be with somebody in the same room but not be able to connect with them or have them care how you feel. You know, and we can look at this fracture from, from the other perspective, from the female's perspective growing up. And if she's never been able to attach or bond to a family member or feel close to a father or feel close to a male figure in, in a safe way, now she's into a marital relationship and she's put a lot of hope and a lot of trust into her, her husband or partner. And now if, if he's involved in this secretive world, it reignites or recalibrates uh, that, that fear and that anxiety of being abandoned, of being rejected, of being neglected. And really, you put these two together from the male's perspective and the female's p- perspective, and we really have some real-life challenges of that attachment and how do we create it. And I think that's a critical part that we address that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. And uh, the, the thing that I, I want to look for when I'm, when I'm talking with couples about this is understanding 
in this early attachment, primary attachment uh, relationship with a caregiver, whether it was secure, insecure, unavailable, whatever the case may be, I want to understand from them, how did you cope with that? What did you do to seek comfort? And when that wasn't available, what did you do? And in many cases, they discover things like sex or money or food or performing, uh, people-pleasing, things like that, to try and feel a sense of connection and safety. And a lot of the times, those combined with maybe early exposure to pornography, other things like that, it, it creates patterns of how I deal with distress. And in healthy relationships, when we're distressed, we have an inborn reflex to reach out to others. And when you learn that that's not available, then you start to reach for other things. And it's either a thing or you turn inside and it's more likely to show itself as depression or anxiety. And, and as you begin to see, uh, again, we're talking about the shift toward an attachment or attached relationship. And But when we're isolating ourselves, when we're staying away from social experiences, identifying ourselves as a, a, a shy person, a lonely person, and, and this could be either the male or the female as we're talking, then they approach individuals and relationships from literally a a place of I'm not good enough or people aren't going to accept me. And and th- that's really the antithesis of what we want to create in a healthy relationship. It's exactly the opposite because if we can create a healthy, intimate relationship, close, attached to people who are understanding each other, I think the word is attuned mm-hmm. to each other, wow, we, we really are creating a place where some of them have maybe never experienced that kind of uh, acceptance and love. Yeah, attachment researchers call that the secure base. And they talk about this as a primary survival need, as important as food, water, shelter, and oxygen. And without that, you know, we, we don't thrive at all. I, I think of the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks where he forms a, uh, a relationship with this volleyball And what I think is so interesting about that is here we've got this survival movie where we're dealing with a guy who really is is on the verge of death if he doesn't figure out how to get fire and shelter and water and food and companionship. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so they include this volleyball as one of the essential key elements to this film. And, And what's interesting at the very end of the movie is when he loses the volleyball, he believes that he's let the volleyball down by fl- it floating away, and he's distressed that he couldn't be there for it. So the need for us to reach out and reach connect out. Mm-hmm. and also have somebody need us is, is central to our survival as human beings. And I think that's oftentimes overlooked. I think we don't realize how critical it is for us to feel acceptance from, from others. In fact, I saw a study, this was back in the 60s, and the authors uh, found that the average human being needs at least seven touches per day to stay mentally healthy, seven type of touch. And and what's happening when we don't get that touch is we begin to withdraw. And they've actually shown this with children in orphanages. If they're not touched, That's they right. die. That's right. They die. And and so we really need to recognize the critical part of, of touch, of being able to be close. And yet we're talking with couples who've been burned, an individual who's been burned in a relationship, and they're saying, you want me to do what? Exactly. Exactly. And that that secure base of attachment, of safe, secure attachment, is so central to our thriving as individuals. Because what happens is if we don't get that safe connection, that safe, secure base, we actually have more anxiety, more depression. We don't regulate our emotions as easily. We don't take as many risks in terms of learning new things, taking on new challenges. We're not as curious. And uh, it also, attachment serves as a buffer from stress and pain. 
Well, and that the reason why is because it actually relaxes the mind. It literally creates less stress when you feel a closeness and openness and honesty with a partner. And that's really where couples begin to make it through this challenge that they're experiencing of pornography in the relationship is when they begin to open up. In fact, have you not seen this when couples haven't maybe had a really close relationship for maybe years? three to five, ten years, and then they hit this, They disc- pornography is discovered, and all of a sudden there seems to be an openness that they haven't experienced in years. And for a brief period of time, there is more connection, more communication, more openness, more literally more conversation than maybe they've had in years. And it's like they almost are feeling energized by the openness of what what's happening here in the discovery of it. Oh, yeah. It absolutely forces... Uh, the issue of openness and transparency and honesty, which has been so sorely missed in the relationship. And it does create that secure base. And our, our objective, of course, today and, and uh, in these next couple episodes is to really uh, help couples nurture and maintain that for long-term recovery. Yeah. And I think that as we talk about attachment, we, it's very important that our listeners understand that this is, begins not only in childhood, but as we grow into uh, teenagers and into adulthood, learning how to attach, and I say learning how to attach, is a skill we develop. It's not a matter of either you have it or don't have it. And I, I, unfortunately, our society believes that we're kind of a fixed in, in the way we are and the way we think. But let me just give an example of this, Jeff. I was reading uh, the work of Dr. Joseph Ledoux. He's, he's a researcher who studies emotions. And uh, recently I did a radio interview with him where he said, and he shared this story um, back in early 2000, they were doing some research to see what, if they could kind of block memories from occurring. And so he said this fascinating thing that they've just really come to the conclusion that they can actually block memories. And, and what that means is his question is, can we erase memories? And so he said it this way. He said, when you retrieve a memory, and whatever that memory is, if the protein synthesis of going back into the mind, the long-term memory, is prevented from occurring, then that memory is erased, gone, or unaccessible. Now, what does that mean? He said, further, when you retrieve a memory, it never goes back in the way you retrieved it. Because when you pull it out, it's gathering new data. It's getting more information. And so when individuals are looking at, let's say, attachment as an example, they're looking at whether they are, are, feel safe and secure with a person. If that person continues to do the same behaviors that left that relationship unattached, the two people not close to each other, they put it back in with more hurt and more pain, and it's more of an emotionally painful experience every time they think about it. And so if when you pull a memory out, there is something that happens before it's put back in that's positive, an understanding, a closeness, an acceptance, a good conversation, it literally can be put in with less fear, with less trauma. That's right. And this is such an important point because we see this uh, in, in the formation of healthy attachment bonds in parent-child relationship, which is an easier way to understand attachment because most of us can connect with that, mm-hmm. um, if not in our own lives, certainly uh, by learning from the lives of others. And I think what's important to understand about this is that when a person in a primary attachment relationship reaches out in their pain, if the person responds to them in that pain in a loving, supportive, accessible, responsive way – 
the way that they internalize that pain when it comes back or when they, the way they make sense of it, especially when they retrieve it again, like you said, it's a different experience. They have a different reframe on it, a different, a different, a whole different feel with it. And that's the good news about how couples can help each other in healing from the pain of betrayal. You know, in an interesting story that's not related to pornography and marriage, but related to abuse in marriage, there's a, there's a point in, in what we were just talking about here. Uh, talk about responding to a difficult circumstances. There was a, a case that I'm familiar with where a lady was being abused by her husband and had been abused, physically abused, for, for quite some time. And she was learning about how to openly communicate without shaming him. And this was a case that many years ago, and it was shared by some friends of mine. And what happened was very fascinating. After he had abused her, literally hit her in the face, she looked at him as he was leaving the room. And she says, I don't believe and I can't believe that you want to hurt me. And in that response, he turned around and, and literally began crying. And his, his, his tears were there, and he literally turned to her and said, I never want to abuse you. And I, I look at her response there as an openness, as a reaching out. And, a, and even in his abusive behavior, she sent a message to him, I can't believe you want to do this. Hmm. And I think there's a powerful parallel between a woman being able to say such a statement to a husband I can't believe that you, it, it would, you would want to hurt me this way because I believe that there's a great amount of inside of the man, he doesn't want to hurt his wife. And yet the addiction has literally become such a part of his life. He's not able to, in that moment when he's giving in to the craving, he's not thinking about her. But for that response, I can't believe you would want, you, you really want to hurt me. If he could hear that and feel that and be attuned to that emotion, and she could be at a place where she could do that, well, I think we would have a very powerful conversation. Yeah, I love that example. And I, 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 we're definitely going to go there in this, in this next part, uh, you know, part five, in terms of giving couples key strategies and some very specific helps that they can do this because. Uh, we we know from the from previous episodes that pornography hijacks the system, and it disconnects people from their deepest core values and their deepest compassion for one another, and that's the thing when when they come out of the fog of the addiction when they finally get some some awareness of this it's horrifying to these men. The women are already horrified, obviously, but it's horrifying to these men about how deeply this has hurt her, and when they connect to that compassion, that will actually drive them to protect. The relationship, and that's what we want to really nurture. And and that's such a critical point. Protecting the relationship is something that they may not have seen before, because they, if you aren't feeling attached, then there's no, there is no protection of the relationship, because you're you're really protecting yourself. That's right. And with pornography, what we're dealing with is a counterfeit or a competing attachment. And so when I when I look at the formation of healthy adult attachment and how pornography affects that, what I see happening is that when you have two people that are forming a healthy attachment bond, you've got two people that this is different from the parent-child relationship. From the parent-child, it's a one-way attachment, meaning that the primary attachment is the child that needs the parents for protection, safety, security, accessibility, and responsiveness. The parent doesn't expect that back from the child for the parent to be okay. In an adult relationship, it's not like that. It's a two-way primary attachment, meaning that each partner depends on the other person to be there, to care how they feel, to know that they'll be there and respond to them. 
And so as, as couples early on in their relationship have lots of experiences of being there for each other, caring how the other feels, listening, touching, talking, and there's all these uh, there's all these experiences where there's high levels of attunement going on and they're syncing with each other, then you form a healthy adult bond. And where the danger of pornography, or say the damage of it rather, uh, happens to this relationship is that instead of turning to the relationship for comfort, security, reassurance, and safety, he's reaching for something else. And this is exactly where it hits the heart of the relationship, is that turning away, that's where the damage is. It's not all just about a moralistic pornography is bad kind of a reaction. It is this guy turned away from me, and I don't know where he is. I feel rejected, abandoned, alone. I worry that he doesn't want me. And essentially, there's now a second attachment competing for that primary relationship. And what happens, and I I really love the way you say that, there's a second attachment. And typically, a male is not going to think of him attaching to pornography. But in the mental maps of the brain, that is what is occurring because he's getting parallel chemicals in the brain that are very similar to the sexual intimacy that occurs in a marital relationship. And so what is then occurring is there is some type of, he starts to think more about it, those images. And so he may even take that to the bedroom where the female then says, it feels like empty sex because it doesn't feel like he's attaching to me. And I think there is that attunement, even when something's wrong. And I think that's why many women can say in their minds, something doesn't feel right because they're not feeling that attachment or that closeness That's right. that happens in the sexual intimacy. That's right. And so what ends up happening is that when you think of attachment, you think of, I go to something to get a predictable response, right? I go to my partner or as a child of a parent, I go to my parent and I, and, I, and I know that if I'm distressed or I'm hurt, they'll respond to me this way. Pornography is highly predictable. When you go to pornography or masturbation or any sort of sexual acting out behavior, you get the same response every single time. And there's an endless variety to provide the same type of response. When you're dealing with human beings, it's just not that predictable. And so that's another reason why pornography becomes so highly addictive as an attachment type of thing because when they're distressed and they reach, and then they reach for this thing that gives them immediate uh, sense of well-being, a sense of connection, a sense of everything's going to be okay, I feel so much better, it's that soothing that happens then all of a sudden there's a powerful bond forming there. And it's not always that predictable with real human beings. And another key point to add to this, Jeff, is the concept of being in control. When you don't create attached relationships, whether that's in infancy or young adult years, then oftentimes we turn to feeling like we can control something. And the thing with pornography is it is controllable. It, as you say, it's predictable. And because I can control this, I can guarantee the outcome. If I approach my wife and she has a headache and she's, we've had some type of an argument or I didn't do something quite right, I don't dare turn to her. And that lack of being able to turn to her or feel like I can turn to her then can easily shift back into that I, I can control this. Right. And, and, and so if they're feeling unloved by a spouse, there's been an argument or something, they're at risk for relapse. And I don't want to put that on the female. It's just that's typically the way the male is thinking about it. If he can shift that to, 
I want to attach and I want to understand my wife. And I want, even if I can't control this, I don't have to turn to this thing that really at the end of the day, are you controlling it or is it controlling you? Yeah. And there are definitely ways that you could, you know, we'll be able to help, you know, men who are addicted to pornography learn ways to be able to reach and guarantee that they'll be able to get a more predictable response from their spouse. But also part of living with a real human being is learning to live with uncertainty and learning to live with a little bit of distress and some unpredictability. And that's actually very healthy and is actually protective from slipping back into an addiction. And I love the way you said that. There's a research by Dr. Al Siebert who, who studied resilient individuals for about 40 years. And, and in his work, he found that the people who are, go through the most trauma, the most difficult post-traumatic stress disorder uh, from war, from accidents, from whatever it is, he found that one of the key traits is flexibility, Mm -hmm. the ability to adjust and adapt based upon circumstances. And the ability for a male to learn that instead of turning to the predictable automatic sexual response is empowering to him and actually gives him more control rather than feeling less control with that he thinks he's getting from the pornography. Right, because with pornography, you don't have to be patient. You don't have to be flexible. You don't have to be understanding. It's all about the moment. And and that's so highly addictive, especially when you're in distress. Yeah, and, and really we're talking there about delayed gratification and the capacity to delay it. Because if he can in a, maybe we would call it in a holding pattern, just hold on to that pain or that lack of feeling of being close or in control and literally try to reframe that so he can attach to her, be attuned to her emotions, then he will realize he has so much more influence on this relationship than he ever thought he had before. Absolutely. And I think it's important, and you mentioned this just a little bit ago, that we don't somehow um, uh, misconvey the message that this doesn't mean that partners need to um, become, you know, completely available and... Um, never be able to have a bad day or, or whatever. This is just part of being human, and certainly we want to teach couples how to be responsive to each other in a healthy way, but we're talking about the need for both people to learn how to be somewhat flexible and to accept the limitations of being human and not, you know, not move toward this perfection of, I have to compete with something that's perfectly available and you know, never has any needs or demands. That's just not the goal here. Well, if, and if we stayed in that mindset, then, and you've seen this with some women, they feel like, well, I have to be available sexually every time he wants to have sex or he'll turn to pornography. Wow, that's exactly the opposite of right. what, we, what we want to accomplish. Because her ability to say, I love you, but I, I don't feel comfortable having mm-hmm. sex tonight. Wow, that is the kind of conversation where she's not uh, not afraid of it, and he still feels that love from her because that feeling that love from her is a critical part, and we'll be talking more about that, the way that she can respond as they this couple begins or continues that recovery process. Yeah, we'll get into that in part five, but you're exactly right. The, the most critical thing we're looking for here is understanding how to, how to uh, talk about and maintain this level of connectedness early in the recovery process. And the reason it gets damaged so deeply, again, is because of that turning away, because there's a disconnection where he's turning away from the relationship. And one thing, and I have to be careful because sometimes this can feel a little bit sensitive to partners, understandably. Another thing that happens is when she feels that disconnection, because her need for closeness is a survival need, right? He has the same survival need as well. But when he pulls away from that and he's getting that 
predictable, connected, counterfeit, competing attachment response from pornography, it will oftentimes, well, in every case that I've seen for that matter, throw her into a set of reactive behaviors as a way to try and cope with the disconnection and the trauma of losing that safety of that attachment. And she has to get it somewhere. That's right. Right. She's going to be looking up, and if she can't find it, then then you're going to see an increase in the stress levels, an increase perhaps in anger or in just sullenness and sad depression because she feels hopeless or like, I can never compete with those images. I can never compete because he keeps going back too. And she needs a safe place where she can be open about her hurts, her pains, her fears. And this is why women literally feel like they're going crazy. If you take oxygen from a person, if you take away one of those survival needs, people start to panic. You know, you take off a regulator in scuba diving or, you know, you, uh, you take off somebody's oxygen when they're climbing a high mountain and they start to get, become disoriented and panic. And that's exactly what happens when she discovers that he's not there anymore or that this whole time he's not been available and he's been bonding with this other thing. And so... Um, Rory Reed has done a lot of great research on depathologizing, which is a fancy way of saying um, removing the stigma of mental illness from the partners of, of men who struggle with pornography addiction. Mm-hmm. Because for years, they've been looked at in the, in, in the addiction literature as having um, a lot of these sort of mental problems and so on. And the reality is, is that these are women that for the most part are pretty regular people but that are dealing with a crazy-making situation of how do I get attached to somebody who's not available to me? And the other thing that pornography does is it makes men more cut off from their own emotions and their own sensitivity and feelings. And so you have this double shot of he's turning away from me, but he's also turning away from himself. And so he's almost twice as unavailable than he would normally be if he was connected and attached. And and there's enough scientific evidence that really shows what you just described there. Because pornography uh, oftentimes leads to masturbation, the two of them go hand in hand. When a person views pornography and masturbates, they actually get more testosterone, which actually produces the feelings of lust, and it increases the testosterone in the system. In fact, I read recently uh, that it increases the testosterone by 100%. Now, when you do that, then your need for social bonding is reduced. And, and that's, again, that's the exact opposite of what his wife is needing. She's needing a social bonding. She's needing that connection with him. And if it's not him, then she's got to find it somewhere else. And no, she's not going crazy. She's l- literally, she, the oxygen has been pulled out, as you say, and she's, su- she's sucking wind, trying to get the air from somewhere. And, and he's over here probably feeling his own guilt, not knowing how to give her that oxygen because he's the one who's created – he's the one who pulled the plug or pulled the oxygen. Yeah, and here's, here's the big dilemma. You've, you've got a partner who's struggling for breath, right, who, who doesn't feel attached, is scared to death, has this deep fear of abandonment, and is experiencing it. And then you've also got uh, an individual, a man who's addicted to pornography – now with his attachment, right, he's got this competing attachment with pornography, but he's also still in a relationship with a person that he needs. Even though he may not consciously be aware of it, he has that primary attachment need with her. But now everything she's doing appears to look rejecting, shaming, 
out of control. She's so angry. That's She's right. so irritable. Why can't she understand me? And and those things are going through his mind. So why not turn to that predictable thing? Right. So a lot of times we find that partners unintentionally start to develop unhealthy uh, reactions in anger or overeating or cleaning or obsessing and things like that. And so what you've got is you end up unfortunately getting two people that are in a completely reactive set of behaviors trying to find a secure base. And they're both sitting there feeling more alone, more isolated, feeling cut off from what they really need, which is closest security. But it's so delicate because it's not safe initially to turn to each other for that because you don't know if you're going to get that or not. And, and that's the unpredictableness yes. of, of what you really could expect. And I think there's an important question here that I think a lot of listeners may be asking themselves, especially if they grew up in families where they weren't able to attach. They're probably asking, well, how do I take that risk? Mm -hmm. I mean, I've really never felt a close attached relationship or attachment with people. Uh, What what are some of the things that you would say to somebody who, if they've never had that kind of attachment, what are some of the things that they could do? Because I think that really parallels with this couple who are in that pain. They're saying, how do we do this now? Well, I think that's an excellent question. And my first response to that would be, the, the easiest way to start rebuilding that is to join a group. And, and the reason I say that is because groups, whether it's a 12-step support group or a group therapy setting, um, it really can mimic almost like a family system. And all of a sudden, you're starting to turn to people, even though they're strangers, you're starting to turn to people in your distress, and they care back how you feel. And that starts to happen a little bit at a time, and all of a sudden, it builds a, a template in your mind that people can be there for me. And it bridges the belief that this might be able to happen in my intimate relationship. And I see this happening when people come into groups and they're so fragmented in their relationships with their primary attachment figure, with their spouse. And what ends up happening is that they come into the group and they're very guarded and withholding and and cautious. But over time, they start to be able to reach out. And that's why doing recovery work in isolation or just over the internet, or just reading a book, or whatever, is not going to be enough, because you've got to get that attunement back, and a lot of the times, the primary relationship is not safe enough, or predictable enough yet, to really do that, and so that serves as a bridge, and a temporary attachment, if you will, to getting back to that primary attachment. And I think, if we give a reality here, this is a process, it's not going to happen overnight, because you're talking about creating friendships, Right. You're talking about bonding with people. It's attunement, and it happens over hundreds, if not thousands, of interactions. Day in and day Day out. That's right. And I would add to that, if you've really never felt an attachment bond with somebody, a deep one, my experience is that in a conversation, you might say something like this. Let's say it's a marital relationship who are feeling disconnected and really not haven't felt a lot of attachment with each other. If you look deep in your heart, and I'm going to make an assumption here that there's a want, that you want that attachment. I can't say that all people want attachments because they've been hurt so deeply that they don't believe it will happen for them. But I even believe even in them at the core, there is a reaching, a longing, a wanting to connect. Mm -hmm. And I believe that in this marital relationship, even if two people are hurting, if one or both of them could say... I don't trust you right now, but I want to. That's right. I want, I want to, 
is an expression of a desire or at least some type of a, I want to commit in a deeper emotional way with you. There is something that happens in that very process of saying, expressing the want. It's almost as if you're saying, I'm going to take this risk. I want to do this. I'm willing to do this with you. And sometimes it's that very want that takes it to the level where there's more openness. And I think even if a partner is not even sure that even that expression can build some, start to build the seeds of attachment. And what I mean is, even if a partner says, I'm so hurt by you, I'm so angry at what happened, and I'm not even sure what I feel about our relationship, even being able to say that is a start. It's a move forward. It's facing the relationship. And that's where attunement starts to begin. And especially, and this we'll talk about more in part five, but especially if he can stay there with her in that expression and take how she feels seriously, all of a sudden he's present, he's there. And so as, as couples reach out socially in group or with friends or ecclesiastical leaders or therapy, or they start to practice connecting and reaching out and getting in touch with some of those more vulnerable feelings and wants and desires. And then they start bringing those to that primary marital bond mm-hmm. and expressing those. You've got a recipe for starting to rebuild trust. Like you said, it's very slow. It's very delicate. But that's how it starts to happen. And it's amazing. You wouldn't think that expressing uncertainty in a relationship would do anything to build closeness. But if you look at not what's being said, but you pull back from it and look at what's happening, you've got people facing each other and starting to express how they feel and people staying with each other in that, that builds a lot of connection um, over time. And you're really talking about being able to open up. Yes. And, And when you cannot open up, you cannot attach. Right. And I think about parent-child relationship. Again, it's easier sometimes to think of these. Um, How powerful is it for a a child, an eight-year-old child, let's say, to be able to say to a parent, I hate you. Mm -hmm. I don't like you. You're the worst parent in the world. And the parent stays there with the child, right? And the parent just stays there and says, says, man, this something's really hurting you. That's so upsetting to you. And then maybe they just hold them or they just stay there with them and say, wow, that is so hard. And, or you're so disappointed in what happened or whatever their parent may say. But if they stay with the child in their pain, even though the child's expressing something really pretty hard to hear as a parent, you've got powerful bonding going on. And, and if you're willing to stay there, now that's the point where we oftentimes in this couple relationship don't succeed because the natural response is to get out of there, that's to right. flee away from there, or to fight back. Well, I hate you too. You're not the only one that's hurting uh, this right. relationship. Yeah, you're not the only one. And so we go back. Right. No, then we get World War III yeah. in, in this relationship. And the ability to actually sit there and in that moment, uh, I really like how the mindfulness research on this. In, in the moment, not to judge the experience, just to sit back and understand it, it creates a different pathway in the brain where we're more sensitive, we're more compassionate, we're more caring. There's phenomenal research on that, the capacity to be mindful in the moment of really what's happening, the pain, the hurt. Don't feel like you have to fix it right now. The very fact that you're understanding it is the beginning steps to healing it. Yeah, Dorothy Beckvar, who's done a tremendous amount of research on grieving and bereavement and, uh, 
and so on. I, I attended a workshop where she talked about the best thing you can do for somebody when they're in pain, and she was referring to the pain of bereavement and loss, which really this is very similar to that. It's an exact experience. You've lost a connection. She says that the most healing thing is to have what she calls the ministry of presence. Mm. And there's something about being present with somebody in that moment that is so bonding and so healing. And a lot of the times we think we have to say something, but really it's just knowing that your partner is there for you. And again, we'll talk more about this in part five, but, but these men who struggle with pornography addiction, if they can learn how to stay present and stay facing and connected to their wives, that is so powerful. A lot of guys, understandably, feel like they need to give their wives a lot of space and time for healing. But that's exactly what she doesn't need because that's what's hurting her so bad is the disconnection that he's had by chasing this other attachment. And so it's not that he's going to smother her now or overwhelm her with his presence, but it's that he's going to be accessible, responsive, present. And that's what's going to rebuild this. And specifics. There's questions that he can be asking or, or at least helping her explore and open up that we'll really talk about in the next mm-hmm. uh, part of this series. Because it's the element of being able to attach to the emotion and not literally flee from it or fight back from it. But literally, literally it's like you're accepting it into your world. Mm-hmm. And you're saying, I'm getting it. I, I get this emotion. And many of these people that we, we work with, they were deprived of that as children. I remember one uh, individual that I was working with, his story is very profound. At age four, five, six, seven, he literally, his family was so sexualized. I mean, dad touched his mom in front of him, pitching her rear end and grabbing her all over her body and just in front of the kids. I mean, he literally would take her and throw her on the couch and get on top of her in front of the family. And so women were to be used. And as he went through his, you know, experience with his siblings, I mean, they were fighting all the time and there was this touching and I mean, it was just, it was just a crazy chaotic world. He never felt loved by his parents. He never felt close to them. And now he's a teenager going into the high, through the high school years. And the way he sees women is literally to be used. And so he tried, he formed so many of these erotic relationships, one night stand type of things. And so he comes to me at a certain point and he is, I mean, highly sexualized, extremely, I mean, no attached bonds, no, I mean, never has he had a girlfriend. He's had multiple sexual experiences, but never a long-term commitment in, in relationship. And as he revealed this story to me and as he talked through his experience, he literally, when I said, who are you closest to? He said, nobody. There, there's not anybody that I'm close to. And one of our objectives, key objectives... Of, of our therapy sessions was to learn how to see people as people and learn to attach and get close by sharing and opening up with people. That means attending group. That means being able to come openly and talk with me about some of his experiences, but also then to reach out to roommates and other people that he was with. And, and literally over time, there was a process or a transformation of seeing people. And when he came in and he said, you know what? I had that urge to get online and to create a one-night sexual experience. And he said, I realized what I was looking for. I was looking for closeness, and I didn't have it at that moment because I was really looking for just some type of an experience. And he said, when I realized what I was doing and I pulled back, 
I thought, that's not who I am. That's not who I want to be. And, and literally in that process, that awareness, he stepped back and it was so profound to him that then he said, I really want a relationship that, I can, that will last. Now, this individual is now married and he's been through some incredibly difficult emotional experiences in marriage because he still had to learn to continue to connect. And now he's a father and he's learning to connect with a child, something that he never experienced as, as a child. And, and, and literally, over time, he's had to work through some of these attachment bonds that never were created. And I look at his experience and think, if he never learns to attach to people, what, what's the likelihood that he'll ever get out of, out of that? And when the moment I think he stepped back, and I think a key turning point was he, he realized in the moment he was going just to get a sexual experience and not an attachment. When he recognized that, it was a significant shift in how he approached relationships. Wow, that, that story is so important. What a great illustration of what we're talking about. <clears throat> and I think what one point that you made in here that I want to expand on a little bit is that that individuals who struggle with pornography addiction and their partners are going to be the most vulnerable to triggers. For him, they'll turn into sexual triggers, and for her, they'll turn into triggers around fear, obsessing, anxiety, control. Those vulnerabilities are going to be the strongest when they're the most when they're the most needful of some sort of secure attachment bond. So a quick example of each is, for example, with, with a guy uh, who struggles with pornography, um, he may be on a business trip. He may be feeling lonely. He's uh, alone in a hotel room. Now, you would look at that and think, well, he's just going to do it because he can get away with it. Well, my experience has been in working with these guys is that you get them to be honest about it, and they feel lonely. They feel worried. They feel maybe insecure because they've got something they've got to do the next day, a presentation, or maybe they're just getting back from something they felt a little defeated. And there's this need to feel reassured and connected. And that's where the pull for the sexual outlet is going to come from, that deep attachment need. And if they can get in touch with that, they can protect themselves from the sexual urge. And for a partner, when she's going to be the most activated and is going to be usually around some trigger that reminds her of the disconnection. So she may drive by a place where he acted out. She may be reminded of a certain uh, time of the year when this, you know, when she discovered his addiction. And all of a sudden that memory, that feeling of, I'm not enough, he doesn't want me, I don't measure up, um, I don't know where he's at, I don't know what's real. Those, those deep feelings of fear and disconnection um, are going to surface at that moment, again, related to attachment problems. And so because everybody has this lifelong, deep, inborn, and instinctive need to feel safe, connected, accepted, loved, and close, those are going to be the sources of your biggest triggers. And successful recovery is about understanding those and talking about it from those. To only focus on the symptoms, the sexual symptoms or the panic anxiety, and those behaviors is to completely miss the real root of the problem and the solution. And and really, as I see what you're describing there, it's an emptiness. That's right. It's like it, there's this void inside of me that I need to be. It needs to be filled. And if it's not filled, we we have to turn to something. It's a healthy need. It's not something that's pathological. It's not something that 
um, is weak or regressive or immature or needy or clingy. It is a healthy inborn need. And that's one of the things that really frustrates me about our current media is I should be I should be able to do this on my own, self-actualized. Right. Well, self-actualization really, if it does not include human intimacy, is, is leading us down the wrong pathway. Healthy attachment is a co-regulation of emotion. And so pornography, these guys are turning to pornography to co-regulate. In other words, they're reaching to something to help them regulate the way they feel. And partners are turning to him or to whatever and yelling and freaking out because they're looking for someone to regulate the way they feel. We don't do this alone. We never have as babies. Yeah. It's not an unhealthy thing. And so couples have to learn how to... Uh, how to maximize and take advantage of this marital primary relationship bond and heal it so that they can turn it into a co-regulating attachment bond that will help them both feel safely connected. That's what we're going for here. And when couples learn to understand that concept and apply it, the outcome, the byproduct of attachment is intimacy. That's correct. And it absolutely insulates you and protects you from the out-of-control behaviors that were causing damage to yourself and to your family system, both the sexual ones and also the out-of-control anger and other obsessive behaviors that partners, again, inadvertently get sucked into because of these deep betrayals and traumas. And those get healed when this co-regulation, this healthy attachment is going on. And the exciting thing is when couples recognize that they can be more in charge of their intimacy, of the attachment, wow, then they begin to say, why in the world would I want to turn to pornography from the male? And and of course, I'm seeing him now, and this is from her perspective, he's opening up, he's communicating, he's talking. This is the man that I really thought I had married. That's right. And, and so we begin to literally create an excitement back into the relationship. It comes back in because they, there's that hope, there's that energy. And really, marriages need to be re-energized. I mean, even if pornography is not involved, we need to have an energetic component because the mind looks for, looks for something that's Novelty. new or novel uh-huh. or something to change. And that's the part that we have to acknowledge. We, you can't be stagnant. Stagnation is, is literally going to lead to to previously unhealthy behaviors that have been a part of your life or to new ones that have not been found. And so in a marital relationship, it's good to have some change and some fun conversations and open conversations, which we'll talk about more next. That's right. And the the, the tragedy of this is that when couples uh, experience the betrayal of pornography addiction, it puts them in a standstill and it freezes them in place. And they've got to know that there are things they can do individually and as a couple to start moving back toward and rethreading that attachment bond. And so as we conclude today, one of the things that uh, I want you to look our listeners to understand, next session, one of the key, the topic is the key steps to rebuilding of this trust. That's right. And, and we'll be talking about the communication and we'll be talking about what happens if a relapse occurs. How do you communicate about it? And we'll be talking a little bit about shifting more towards that trust that needs to be developed. That's right. And so this is important because, as we talked about, that ongoing attunement is going to happen over uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of interactions day after day after day and rebuilding this over the, over the course of long-term couples recovery. So we want to give you specific ways to start to nurture this bond back. So... Um, this, is, this concludes our uh, segment here of part four, which is addiction and intimacy, part of the ongoing series of uh, strengthening recovery through strengthening marriage, healing from pornography addiction. I'm Jeff Stewart. And Dr. Kevin Skinner, we want to thank you for being with us. 